Well, hi there, everybody. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great honor and a privilege to be here with you folks this morning. Um, Scott and Rachel have been a blessing to us. They were with us for almost a year up there in Salem before coming down here. And uh, I tell you, there's a, there's a family that has a heart for God. I'll tell you that. And I thank you for letting me come here and hopefully... You won't chase me out before I get done here. Anyway, but anyway, that we're, we're talking about Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22 today, and it's probably a familiar scripture. Most of us have read it at some time. Does wealth really count? And what, what does that mean? What is wealth, you know? Well, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I have, to, must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We've heard that kind of thing all over the world, haven't we? Even today, don't we? <laughs> you know, I don't expect any of you here to know the name of Wellington R. Burt. I don't know. Anybody know that name? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, it's not familiar with us. He was a lumber baron that died in 1919. And uh, at the age of 87, he was the eighth richest person in the United States in 1919. But none of us have heard much about him. Yeah, his wealth was estimated between 40 and 90 million dollars, which was a lot going into that depression time, wasn't it? And, you know, he's not particularly remembered for his civic labors or his uh, serving as mayor of Saginaw or Mi a Michigan state senator, any of that stuff. He's not known for it. The town of Burt, Michigan is named after him. And in Saginaw, Michigan, there's a street named Burt. <laughs> Yet neither his charitable, charitable donations nor the honors that rose from having those things named after him are, are really given any particular thought today when we stop and look at it. Wellington R. Burt is uh, remembered primarily for one of the most bizarre wills in America. Uh, you know, Burt distinguished himself by including a spite clause in his will, if you, if you will, uh, a clause that exposed him as petty and vindictive and maybe even greedy. You know, he alienated all of his children and grandchildren. He left them out of the will totally. And the conditions, you know, except for some small annuities, he gave a few of them. But uh, the conditions of the will were finally met after the 1989 death of his last grandchild. 
In, in May of 2011, 12 of his great-grandchildren, descendants, finally received the estate worth about, about $100 million in 2011. And in his final years, Bert had some, he just built this fortress against any meaningful relationships that he could have made. And he, he walled himself off from family and friends and, and the things that really we find important to us. And, uh, and so, you know, Christians today often do the same things, don't we? That's the struggle and what this, this message that Christ has given us is all about. And, and I want to see what we can do in order to explain this. I, I, I want to look into this and see where we can apply these words of our Master to our own lives today. So, my brothers and sisters, i got a question for you. <laughs> Are you seeking to please God or seeking to please yourself? That's a question I want you to think about while we go through this. A man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? Well, we have a few details about this young man. <laughs> And Matthew informs us that he was young, right? A young man. And the particular term used here would really kind of denote somebody between the ages of 20 and 40, somewhere in there. Fits some of us out here. Not me, but some of you. <laughs> and Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And hmm. indicating that maybe he was a synagogue official of some kind. And Mark notes that he was a courteous and he was aware of the fact that Jesus deserves a measure of respect here. And he addresses the master as good teacher. And I think for the benefit of the doubt for this guy, I just want to give this guy the benefit of the doubt to say that it appears that he truly wanted to find how he could please God. And that's the way a lot of us feel, isn't it? He truly wanted to see how he could please God. And, and, <laughs> and I think that most people want to do that. And, and when we allow ourselves to think of God, we look at how can we please him? What are we doing day in, day out? What are we doing to please God rather than ourselves? You know, consider, consider the case of so many professing Christians today. Who, who may say, I'm a church member, so therefore, you know, I must be pleasing God, right? Or, I was baptized, and surely that's enough, surely. Or, and, you know, I participate in communion, that, that should please God, I think. Or, I, I say prayers, I read the Bible, I'm a good person, not like some people in this world. <laughs> but you see, the common perception here it is that one who is accepted by God revolves about what is done by us alone, by that person rather than, than who they are and how they love others. That's what so many think today. You know, in this, too many Christians are really not too different from Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, or even some abject pagans when you come to think about it. These are non-Christians, and we know they don't know the way of salvation. Do you? Do you know the way of salvation? 
But what are the vast numbers of evangelical Christians who harbor thoughts inside that because they're, you know, they're generous and because they participate in certain rites and rituals that they do and activities of the church and because they once said the sinner's prayer, because they believe in the stated doctrines of their denomination that they're convinced all's well. No problems, no problems. What about those people that focus on those things rather than relationships? He says, uh, you know, establish clearly here. I want to I establish this, and I want you to get this, that rites and rituals are meaningless before God if there is no relationship with God. I want you to get that. Rites and rituals are meaningless before God if there's no relationship with Him. Going back to what uh, was revealed under the Old Covenant, we, we discover that God seeks a transformed life in us and, and, and not this slavish or slavery and adherence to uh, rituals and rites. And, and in Micah 6, um, he says this, his indictment says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love with kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's what it's about, friends. You see, God calls those who hear him to a relationship not a ritual. He wants to be your father. Speaking to you, I tell you, speaking to you with a pastor's heart, it, it really strikes I, I really want you to truly see and, and truly seek your welfare. I do. Just as I know Scott wants the same thing for you. We want you to know the real truth, where that lies is in a relationship with God. And I caution you that God doesn't seek ritual. God looks for those who love him and respond, respond to the love that he gives to us. The only rational conclusion really is that divorce from relationship, ritual is meaningless. If you don't have a relationship with God, what good is it to go through the steps of other things? It, it's such a vital point. I just want you to hear it again. Ritual without relationship is meaningless. Think about that. Friends, this is the thrust of Jesus' response to the question that a scribe posed to him on one occasion. The scribe asked the master, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus didn't brush him off, you know, even though he obviously was trying to trip Jesus up during this. He was trying to do something here. Jesus generously gave the man two answers instead of one. <laughs> when he responded in Mark 12, 28, 31, he said, The most important is, is hear, O Israel, the Lord 
our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. None. No rituals, no rites, no nothing. Those are the important ones. And surely, you know, the answer that Jesus gave makes it evident that he calls. He calls for a relationship with us. That's what he's looking for. He wants to be a part of your life. He wants to share in the things you're doing and the places you're going and what you're seeing and how you're sharing the light, his light. So by loving God, an individual then is transformed. You're transformed when you love him and give your life to him by the one who you worship and you reveal your life to. Notice how this truth is put in 1 John 2.10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Are you loving each other? Are you really caring about each other? You know, the, the, the new birth is, <laughs> is not accomplished through acts of our human effort. That isn't how you're born again, by doing things. It's accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of each and every one of you as you come to God through Jesus Christ. That's where it comes from. And this is evident in the beginning of John's gospel, where we hear in John 1, 12 and 13, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but born of God. The young man in this text that we read today is, is like so many of the churches today. It really is. Imagine that he could in some way, he, did, he was thinking he could secure the blessing of eternal life through some act, some act that without God transforming his life, he erred, just as many err today in how we're reaching out and touching others. You know, there were no deeds, good or otherwise, that anyone of us can perform that would move the hand of God. It's our heart. That's what he looks at. It's our heart. God accepts only those who are redeemed through his marvelous grace, his grace, not by what we do, but what we accept. And, and, and understand that God's mercy cannot be earned, nor may anyone compel God to receive him by your own actions. You can't do that. It's by your believing and acknowledging him and building that relationship. Salvation is all about grace, my friends. It's about grace. However, that grace, once truly received, transforms each one of us to whom God has showered such mercy. This young man asked, you know, what would be required to ensure that God accepted him? What would be required? Obviously, he realized that Jesus was the one who could explain a lot of this stuff to him or he wouldn't have ever gone to him. Maybe, maybe he hadn't really thought through, though, about how really to define eternal life. Have you ever thought about that, how you define eternal life? 
Well, <laughs> to know, you know, that we could secure that eternal life. And I think it might be the case for many Christians in, in a Christian community that eternal life is kind of this nebulous thing. Well, you know, where does it start and where does it go and all this and something we really don't understand. And for many professing Christians, maybe it's even just the majority of professing Christians that when they think of eternal life, you think of this chronological order of things like, okay, those are years coming down the road type of thing. Eternal life must refer to unending days, right? I think we all agree with that, eternal life. So because they are aging, because people are moving toward a rendezvous with death, so to speak, these people see eternal life as something that's yet in the future, yet in the future. However, you see, saved people will live without death being a threat. Truly saved people live without death being a threat. Hmm. What a comfort for a grieving child of God. To, to hear the words of the Spirit, you know, promising death shall be no more. Life without sorrow or tears and without hurt is almost unimaginable for many of us, isn't it? As we see this world darken every day more, don't we? Well, <laughs> what joy there is, though, in the resurrection of that promised that he promised us, and that anticipation we have for that joy. Jesus' words in John 3.16, which we all know by heart, right, must surely qualify as one of the most recognized verses in all of the Bible and in all of history. But take note of Jesus' words. And maybe even some of them may seem even small when you think about some of it. Think about the words. After you go through the whole thing, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Hmm. Ever thought about that before? The verb translated have is in the present tense, friends. It's in the present tense. And, and is active. And this means that... <clears throat> Nicodemus heard these words that Jesus said and, and that eternal life begins at that point and continues on from that point. When you accept him and you start building that relationship with him, your eternal life began right then, right then. It's not down the road after you pass away from this physical life. In other words, you know, when I believe in God's only son, that I possess eternal life, life from that point on. And this is really the implied meaning in Jesus' teaching, that one must be born again, okay? And this new birth speaks of a new quality of life that he's giving to us, that begins now and then continues on for eternity. That's what it's about. The life we live after the new birth reveals the divine parentage that we possess. The life that, did you get that? Life that, after the new birth reveals that divine parentage that we possess from that point on. 
We, we don't do good deeds in order to be saved. But because we are saved, we do good works. So many people get that turned around. You don't do good works to be saved. But when you're saved and you start that relationship and that love grows in you, you do those good works because it's part of what you want to do. The young man asked Jesus, what was necessary for him to inherit eternal life? Maybe he didn't really have a clear understanding, really, of, of what he was really seeking. However, he knew that in some manner, somehow, God controlled granting this particular request. So then Jesus challenges him, challenges him by, by asking how good he actually is. How good is he? And if it fits, because the young man is focused on performing some kind of particular task in order to secure his condition that only God can grant to him. Jesus points to him the commandments, listing the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments. And I believe that Jesus chose these since those commandments are all concerned with how he interacts with others how he builds relationships. Each of these commandments speaks of interaction that has an impact on every one of us around us every day. Look at the response of the young man. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I, I want you to hear, Mark, Ed, you know, there's, this was related in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and Mark adds that a, a comment that is absent from both Matthew and Luke. And in the 21st verse where we read, after he says this, he says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. The master loved this young man. His love reflects approval that he, his desire to know what would be pleasing to God, his desire to know. And I think that Jesus loved him because he was truly a, a good man in society. We've seen a lot of those. It's, and this is important. Make no mistake, there are people who are not followers of Christ out there. There are people who we enjoy to be with, don't we? We enjoy to share time with, to know, and, and to do things with, aren't there? but aren't Christians. You know, there are conscientious people in mankind, good, you know, good people, and their relations with fellow men are good. So they're a joy to know, living praiseworthy lives. However, we can never just live lives good enough to earn God's praise. You have to get to know God. That's a must. You have to. Jesus, because he loved him, spoke the words recorded in the text. And understand that, that our Lord was capable of very stern words. He really is. And, and quite obviously able to speak tones of fear into a lot of sinners. But Mark leads us to believe this isn't the instance here with Jesus. His words were warm and inviting, trying to get him to see. And that's what he's trying to get each one of us to see. What's important? It's not the, the deeds and the rituals and that. 
it's our relationship with him first and then with each other, with each other. And I have to believe that, that the master sought to transition this young man from being merely a fan, as you've heard this, to being a follower. He was trying to get him to catch this. And Jesus said, you lack one thing, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you have, will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see, the young man had assumed that he could do something that would compel God to accept him. And being a Jewish lab and lad and even a leader in one of the synagogues, the young man no doubt imagined that keeping the law would be enough, would be enough to gain God's approval. But you see, Jesus didn't rebuke the young man for his answer. He didn't. And maybe he did keep the commandments listed in, the, in a commendable fashion, so to speak. However, Jesus put his finger on something the young man had not considered at that point when he told him to sell what he owned and come follow Jesus. <sighs> you know, don't read this so fast that you miss the, f the fine points of Jesus' teaching here. Don't go through it so fast that you just go over the top of it. Jesus didn't hint that he accepted the young man, that he had maintained even those commandments perfectly, because he hadn't. How many of us have maintained all the commandments perfectly every day, in and out? Well, <laughs> so do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Well, most of you do. <laughs> do you recall what Jesus said about a couple of these commandments during that sermon? In the first place, Jesus told those who listened that he was not abolishing the commandments or the law when he said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Was this young man present on that day when Jesus gave, spoke those words? Who knows? <laughs> you know? Whether he was or not, he was obviously familiar with what Jesus was speaking and who he was and the evidence that, that he gave, so he approached him as his master. And though we can't really say definitively that this young man was familiar with the message delivered on that Judean hillside, we can say with authority that you and I have heard those words, haven't we? We have heard those words. <laughs> The, it's obviously true that each of us has struggled at one point or another. We all have. We've all struggled with unrighteous anger, things that we struggle with. We know full well that we have insulted other Christians at some various times. We all have. Exalting ourselves even sometimes over these other people <laughs> as we criticize them. And we've boasted on our beliefs in condemning others, thinking we must surely be the true people. Ever thought that? Hmm. Again, you know, who among us can say that we have never harbored hurtful thoughts or that we have always looked at one another as brothers and sisters? Who among us? 
Maybe all of this is inevitable when the movies and the television shows that are on out there are just full of all the scandalous situations, the things the world is filled with out there. Well, but Jesus placed his finger on a sin that ruins more people than anything else we could ever expect. You see, this young man was thoroughly infected with a virus. <laughs> Sound familiar? Hmm. A virus that has contaminated far too many. He was filled with greed. We attempt to sanctify our failure to trust God by renaming our greed and our lack of trust in God by speaking of our own need or for our own security or by speaking of the need to care for ourselves or our family or by speaking of our own outright comfort. Hmm. Let me say again very clearly, very clearly, God does not condemn wealth. God condemns the exaltation of wealth to a place that is rightfully belonging to him. When money is held close to your eyes, you can't see God. Think about that. I appreciate the way the translators of the Holman Christian Standard treats verse 22 when he says he was stunned. He was stunned at this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. It's an eye-opening verse, friends. It is. This man was unable to turn loose of what he possessed. He wasn't merely <laughs> sad at the thought God required him to, of what he wanted to let go of. He was grieved. He was grieved when he was told that he would have to relinquish his possessions. How tragic when people pass into eternity still clinging, clinging to the things of this dying world as though they could take any of it with them. In our text, the young man's comfort, much like our own comfort and earthly security, was uh, more important than serving the true and living God. Hmm. He, he, like so many of us who named the name of Christ, was focused inwardly rather than outwardly. What did Christ say? He said, go. He didn't say, come sit in a corner, take care of yourself. He said, go. You know, mo most of you know that, <laughs> that I've been involved with the ministry that's been focused with struggling churches and been a blessing to kind of help you guys get going again. And, and we now have helped five churches, yet there are many other churches who have chosen to just cling to a dead past, a dead past that has ensured that they could not survive. They couldn't. I recall a woman in tears that at the thought, the growth that they were going to experience in their place and that they were witnessing, they needed to seek a larger building. Huh. But she was so hung up on the the history behind the little building they had, she talked everybody into saying, no, we, we, we can't do that. She influenced the congregation to choose their immediate comfort over God's glory. Hmm. 
Other churches lived in the past, remembering what was rather than recognizing what is and admitting that (laughs) this is God's church. It's not yours and it's not theirs. This is God's church. And that's what you have to remember. You know, they chose immediate and familiar comfort rather than the challenges arising from moving forward and where God's leading them. Still others were so intent on holding on to some perceived power that they would not permit the spirit to move in their midst that might sweep new people into the kingdom. Across the nation, everywhere, there is buildings just sitting there that once housed thriving, vibrant congregations out there. Today, buildings stand vacant because the congregations chose comfort and history rather than God. Make no mistake, we are capable of exalting our own desires as though we were the highest good. I've seen that in so many places. Well, (laughs) we tend to imagine that our desires express the will of God and failing truly to seek his will. Hmm. Deceased churches don't always die broke either. You know that? I've seen that. Some have unimaginable wealth and accounts that are (laughs) unspent. What happens, however, is that such churches are asking how they can make a difference. They're not asking how they can make a difference for the kingdom or the community with their money. They accumulate it out of fear because of not having enough. That's what they're worried about. And like the rich young ruler, these mausoleums kind of grieve at the thought of doing something for someone else with the monies they received. They fear they won't have enough money so they die with enough money. Hmm. Friends, no church can sustain an inward focus. It can't. For very long, anyway. And the congregation that honors God must always be focused outward. And I know you guys are working on that, and I'm proud of you for that. I really am. Have to be focused outward. Churches have to always think in terms of building the kingdom of God rather than building a personal platform that ensures the comfort of the congregation. It's not what we're here for. Preachers, preachers, all of us can dishonor God when we forget that they are appointed to be servants and not to be princes or leaders of some special kind. Church lay leaders can begin to imagine that their responsibility is so important that it's time to make themselves a great, make themselves great rather than building the kingdom. Hmm. Many tend to just become so spiritually illusioned that they're unable to see that God works throughout his kingdom everywhere he does and far beyond the environments of our own little kingdom here. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. I, I, I said these things because I don't want you to lose your focus. 
I don't want you to lose your focus as a church, as a body of Christ. I urge you, I urge this community of faith that you are here and the things you're doing to remain focused on Christ Jesus and his will. Look for his will, not your ideas. And above all, I plead with those of you, possibly like the rich young man in our text, who become so focused on things of this dying world that they are unable to see the true Savior who died because of their sin. You know very well that Christ Jesus, God's own Son, you, you know this, presented his life as a sacrifice because of yours and my sin. He did that for us. He gave his life for us. Though he was buried in a borrowed tomb, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. He broke the bonds of death that came out of the tomb and revealed himself to those who had been his beloved. And he ascended into the glory where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And now he calls all of us who are willing to receive him as master and build that relationship with him, not with our comforts. This is the reason why we read in the word. If you openly agree with God that Jesus is master, believing with all of your heart, with all your heart, that the Father has raised him from the dead, you will be set free. That's what it's about. It's not about doing things. It's believing. You see, it's with the heart that one who believes and is made right with the Father and then with the mouth speaks it openly that he agrees with God, resulting in your freedom. Of course, I'm not speaking of finding what this young man sought and failed to find, eternal life. This is the, that new quality of life that we have to live right here, right now. Eternity begins right now, right now. In a relationship that is now and ensues and ensures that we are accepted by God forever and ever and ever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just come before you this morning seeking your heart with our heart, Lord. May everyone here, Father, and those around this world and in this community, Father, be willing to be yours and be, build that relationship with you, Lord, to go forward and do things that you enjoy and you bring us to do, Lord. Not things that we think we should do, but what you have brought to us. Guide us, Lord, in all these things and bring us to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.